Hi everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today we are going to have a show which I thought would be a really interesting tie-in with a lot of the shows we've done in the past where we're either looking at the issues in Syria and Iraq or um, jihadist movements and foreign fighters. And there was this great article that was recently posted on Jihadology and it's called The Clear Banners, Turkish Foreign Fighters and the Ogaden. Um, sorry about that. So I'm very happy to have the two authors on the show, and they are the North Caucus Caucus bloggers, and um, they're both analysts. One's an African analyst, um, O.S. Mahmoud, and they are based here in Washington, D.C., so thank you for coming on the show first. No problem. Yeah, thanks for having us. So why don't we, just to start out, give me an idea of where you got the inspiration for this topic, since, of course, the media right now are hearing about lots of foreign fighters going to Syria and the uh, battles in Iraq and Syria. So where did the idea and the inspiration for this article on these Turkish fighters come from? Well, in 2013 and early 2014, I had written uh, two articles for Jihadology, one on Turkish foreign fighters in Syria and the other on Azerbaijani foreign fighters in Syria. But while I was researching the article on Turkish foreign fighters in Syria, uh, I stumbled upon a great deal of historical information about Turks who had been involved in Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, Chechnya. And there was one that stuck out, which I had never heard of before, which was the Agadan. So I looked into it and I found out it was this conflict in Ethiopia in the 90s. Uh, and luckily, I had a good friend who is an expert on uh, the Horn of Africa. So... I went to him. Uh, this is a, a really long article uh, in the ma in the making, uh, but we were able to to get it together. So that was basically it. So I will I will pass this on to also your also partner, and let's hear about your experience since you are an African analyst. Um, and as your partner just mentioned, he came to you for co-authorship. Sure. Uh, I mean, I've always been interested in the Horn of Africa region and, and particularly the dynamics of Somalia have uh, really interested me over the past uh, two decades and uh, sort of all the uh, kind of uh, chaotic events there. Um, and so following the Ogden has been part of that as well. Uh, and we, we've heard about foreign fighters there a little bit um, in the early 90s, but there hasn't been a lot of information, a lot of detail. Uh, and then when... Um, when, when my colleague here came to me with this story about these, these Turkish foreign fighters, I thought it was a really interesting element because often when you were thinking about foreign fighters in the region, you were also thinking just either neighboring countries or other Arab nations. I uh, hadn't really thought about uh, Turkish involvement there, which is kind of also an interesting corollary given Turkish involvement in rebuilding Somalia today. Uh, so I thought it was a very interesting historical example to look into, uh, and luckily uh, he was able to uncover some pretty interesting uh, data points. And that's very okay. true, and we will, of course, post a link to the article for our listeners. They can look at the full piece of work and the data that's in it. It's very, very interesting. So let's look at this setting. So these fighters go to the region in 1996, which is an interesting time. So I was wondering if we could discuss the setting of 1996 that revs up to these young men. Uh, there are 14 Turkish young men that go to Ogden. So why don't one of you let us know about the setting that this story takes place in? Sure. 
<clears throat> so uh, 1996 was an interesting time uh, for aspiring jihadis as two of the big jihadi conflicts of the 1990s were wrapping up. First, the, the conflict in Bosnia uh, ended in December of 1995 at the signing of the Dayton Accords. Um, actually, the, a number of these fighters actually had experience, had gone to Bosnia right at the end of the war and had found that when they arrived, the war was over, essentially over. Uh, and part of the Dayton Accords required the, there was three to 6,000 foreign fighters who had been involved in the conflict, but the Dayton Agreement uh, required them to leave, and many of them did. Uh, additionally, the conflict in, in Chechnya had also been wrapping up at this time. And in August of 1996, the, the Hasavya Agreement was signed, which essentially ended the war. Um, and also the Russians had become much better at stopping the flow of foreigners into the, the conflict by this time. So uh, if you were interested in becoming involved, it'd be to look a little bit further afield at that time. So the Agadan, Kashmir, some of these less known conflicts. And I find it interesting because, as you mentioned, you have these two major battles, Bosnia, Chechnya, where you saw so many young individuals going to fight over there. And all of a sudden you have these young men, say in Turkey and probably elsewhere, that have these jihadi aspirations and it comes to this point of where do we go to fulfill these aspirations. So it seems like the Ogden really offered them that environment, that theater, I guess you could call it. Um, I was wondering if we could look at this situation of the Ogden. How did the region in Ethiopia basically become this theater for a jihad and a battle? What is the history behind it? Sure. Um, well, Ogaden's had a very contentious history marked by cycles of conflict, which uh, continue to this day, really. Um, it's it's a, a region that's uh, predominantly inhabited by ethnic Somalis, um, but it became a part of uh, the Ethiopian Empire between the, the late 19th century, early 20th century, as, as they were expanding uh, out of their sort of more highland areas. Um, and so, but in the post-World War II period, uh, as the British took over Italian possessions, they uh, were in possession of the Ogaden and administering it, and they wound up handing it back to Ethiopia. Now, this was a big deal for a lot of Somali nationalists at the time who were arguing for this idea of a greater Somalia, as through the process of colonization, uh, Somali-inhabited lands had been divided. Uh, you have uh, Djibouti, you have uh, the borders of, of uh, Somalia, you have north, northern uh, Kenya, and you have the Ogaden region. So uh, handing that back to the Ethiopians was a real dent in sort of this uh, greater Somali uh, nationalist project. Uh, and inevitably that led to its movements. In the, in the uh, early 1970s, these started to heat up a little bit with support from the Somali government at the time. Uh, and that wound up culminating uh, in, in a devastating uh, Cold War battle uh, in 1977, 78, when the Somali National Army actually invaded the Ogaden, uh, viewing it as a ripe time to, to sort of uh, um, acquire it by force. Uh, but the Ethiopians wound up prevailing thanks in large part to Soviet Union help and, and Cuban soldiers who were actually on the ground at the time. 
Uh, and so this, it was this really interesting Cold War proxy battle, uh, but at the same time, it wound up ending uh, Somalia's attempts to reacquire the region by force. Um, if you fast forward then to the 1990s, our periods of interest, there's a lot of interesting dynamics going on in Somalia and Ethiopia at this time. In Ethiopia, the, the Derg regime led by uh, Mengistu winds up falling, um, and a new government is ushered in uh, by, uh, uh, under Melisanawi. And this government is really pushing for a more federal structure. And within the Constitution, they, they incorporate, there's actually this article, Article 39, which allows uh, regions within Ethiopia a referendum on self-determination. Uh, so this is music to the ears of many in the Ogaden. However, in practice, this didn't really play out that way, uh, and it wasn't quite as federal as, as advertised. Uh, and so the ruling uh, party at the time there, the Ogaden National Liberation Front, winds up leaving the political scene with a wing focused on armed resistance, and this uh, ignites the most recent uh, cycle of conflict again. Um, we, can, we can talk about how then the Islamist actors sort of get involved uh, within the early 90s, um, because the ONLF was more of a secular uh, Ogaden clan-based movement. But then uh, within Somalia at this time, uh, there's this movement, Al-Ithahad Al-Islamiyah, AI-AI. And they had been growing uh, in the late 80s. Um, in the 70s and 80s, this sort of Salafist uh, uh, ideology starts seeping in a bit more in Somali culture, pr- predominantly from a Gulf influence. Uh, and AIA is the predominant movement within Somalia at this time. Um, by the early 90s, they wind up focusing on on um, armed resistance and jihad. And again, in Somalia at this time, in, in 1991, uh, their central government collapsed too, and dictator Siad Barai flees. So it's sort of a chaotic situation. Uh, and AIA is involved in, in battles uh, throughout Somalia, um, at this time, but they develop a wing focused on the Ogaden in particular. Um, and this kind of brings back this idea of this greater Somalia, this uh, idea that we can reunite all Somali inhabited lands. Uh, at the same time, they infuse that with sort of an Islamist rhetoric. Um, and the, the conflict in the Ogden was very easy to portray in this sort of narrative as rising up against a Christian empire that is legally, operate, uh, legally uh, occupying uh, Islamic Somali land. Um, and so they, they were based in Luk in the border, uh, a town on the border at this time, uh, but they also established camps in the Ogden uh, and waged a low-intensity battle there. I'm looking at AIAI. Were they a big group or was it a smaller group at the starting that grew bigger through the conflict? Or is this a well-funded group? What are they, what is their makeup? Sure. Um, so so they were kind of, a, a, I mean, I'd say they were more of a sort of umbrella term because there was multiple uh, AIAI sort of movements going on in different parts of the country. You had uh, one in the north in Bosaso, you had some in the south down in Kismayo, and then you had this wing focused on the Ogaden that was based in Luke on the border. Um, so so they, they were kind of spread out throughout Somalia at this time, uh, but they also uh, militarily wound up suffering a lot of defeats and moving and relocating throughout the region. Um, and so 
the ones in the north and actually the south wound up uh, uh, kind of more or less disbanding. And this this Ogden wing was one of the one of the few remaining. And if you go research al-Ittihad al-Islami, there are talks about there being a connection with al-Qaeda. And I was wondering if we could look at that element and the validity of it, what sort of connection AIAI had with al-Qaeda, if any. So I was wondering if either one of you could discuss that topic a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's interesting to look at the Ogden region in this context, because um, at this time, uh, you know, in the early 90s, Osama bin Laden's living in Sudan, and Ogden kind of gets on his radar uh, and becomes really interested in, in sort of helping some of the some of the movements there um, to the point where uh, he reportedly invested three million dollars to bring foreign fighters and established camps in the region. Um, and, and again, remember in the early 2000, sorry, in the early 1990s within Somalia, you have U.S. troops operating, you have United Nations peacekeepers. Uh, so it seems like a natural sort of region to get involved with uh, for Al Qaeda. So uh, a lot of what we know uh, is actually from uh, the Harmony documents, which is a declassified database of Al Qaeda memos. There's not a lot out there. Um, on al-Qaeda movements or foreign fighters within the Ogden at this time outside of that. Uh, but essentially, within those documents, um, there there's some reports where al-Qaeda dispatched a team uh, to get in touch with AIAI members along the border region and in, in, in Ogden, and they wound up establishing three training camps, uh, one in Luke and one actually in the Ogden, uh, where they trained uh, likely a few hundred fighters uh, and also facilitated... Uh, sort of an influx of foreign fighters at this time. So I was wondering, looking at the research that you've done in this this article, what types of sources did you use um, to find out about these individuals, which I'd also like to talk about um, further on in this talk, but what type of source material did you find your data from? Sure. Uh, I was lucky that there are several... Um, Websites, for example, shahidlaramizin.com, uh, which is Our Martyrs. It's a website that is dedicated to Turkish Islamists who have gone and fought abroad, as well as been killed in uh, internal conflicts, uh, mainly against Kurdish separatists. But um, these sites uh, reproduce media reporting from uh, contemporary media reporting including often they had the articles themselves, mostly just the text. Uh, so those were the, the, the main source for the, uh, for the information about the Turkish fighters. So going back to actually these young men that you highlight in this article, I would really like to talk about the fighters in particular. Um, I know that you've highlighted 14 individuals, but you in the article have talked about certain individuals and their life before going to the Ogden, their background, their family history. So why don't we just start off with the basic idea of what are the age ranges of these young men that travel to the Ogden for jihad? Sure. All of them were in their early to mid-20s. One guy might have been a little bit closer to 30. Um, but actually, before we, we get there, I wanted to, uh, before we get too far away talking about connections between AQ and AIAI, I wanted to um, talk about the potential that 
these fighters ended up uh, kind of coalescing around one guy, who was Attila Sultan. Uh, Attila Sultan had gone to Bosnia like many of these other fighters, um, but it's reported that while he was in Sultan, uh, while he was in Bosnia, he met other foreign fighters who were guys that informed him about the the conflict in the Agadem. Um, and it's known at this time that in Bosnia there was AQ recruiters for other conflicts talking to to the Mujahideen uh, who were there since the war was over. Um, so I my basic theory on this is that possibly AQ connected with him and then he was kind of the the catalyst for all these other guys and they because it said that he left Turkey with at least 10 other guys um, so it's a strong possibility that he was the catalyst all these other guys kind of coalesced around him and they all kind of went together or at least uh, some of the other guys had connections to that initial group um, but getting back to to your previous point um, so these guys yeah, they're mainly just young men in their 20s uh, most of them, from the available information, they came from – a lot of them lived in Istanbul, even though they had different hometowns, but they were college students. Many of them appeared to be relatively well off, um, quite similar to a lot of other foreign fighters from a lot of different other countries and a lot of other situations. Young men who felt that they you know, had to do something, uh, that they couldn't let – these conflicts go on without them being involved. Um. So that's one of my questions, which looking at, of course, modern day Syria and the individuals that are going to Syria, what have you found in your research has been the general first draw for these young men? Is it, as you just alluded to, this idea of going to the Ogaden in this case, to do good, to help? Are are there other elements also that tend to be the first spark of this is a path I'm going down? What have you found with these individuals? With these individuals, a lot of it seems to be that they're young guys, they're often uh, religious, and a lot of it appears to be at least one of the friends becoming involved in it and then a second friend or a brother or a cousin being the, the draw. Um, some of them seem to have more kind of ideological uh, affinity with this sort of thing, while some of them appeared more to have got into it later in life or simply more for adventurism. Um, at least, let's see. I mean, talking about a lot of this information came out with interviews with their parents after they had died. Um, and some of them had been working and their parents had wanted them to get married or get better jobs. Uh, but they had claimed that, Oh, you know, we have higher ideals. We have, we have to do something. Um, and they actually, one of them wrote a letter to his family from the Agadan saying he felt guilty about having such a good life in Turkey while there's injustice and deprivation occurring all over the world. Um, and at least some of them, their parents had been relatively supportive. Um, the, the father of one of the fighters, Ismail Ozturk, 
who had been had gone to Bosnia and couldn't the war was over and then he had tried to go to Chechnya but he actually got turned back uh, who then hooked up with Attila Sultan uh, and ended up in the Agadan but he was actually I mean he reported being relatively happy about the the kind of the outcome um, and that he had said you know when I was when they were young I had brought my son's uh, you know, books from Libya, and I was hoping that they would kind of that they would internalize this stuff, and they had. So I feel like I was successful. Um, and actually, Ismail Ozturk's twin brother, who had wanted to go to the Agadan, but then couldn't for some reason, ended up dying later in Kashmir a year later. That's really interesting. The family connection of the father of one of the individuals you're highlighting having jihadist aspirations, traveling to different regions for jihad. How much of that do you think, as you mentioned earlier, that these young men, a lot of them knew each other as a group and that potentially there could have been that influence factor to um, changing the minds of their friends to also join them on this mission. How much of that family aspect do you think could have influenced the individuals that are their actual children and then the friends of these children to go to the Aganid and join this fight? At least several of them, there appears to be some connection with their family being supportive. Uh, but then you have other cases where the family did, had no idea, basically, what had. They just knew that their son left one day and they got a letter later saying he was in Ethiopia. Um, so... It definitely seems like the environment was there for them when they were children in some cases, but not so much in other cases. Uh, at least two of the guys also, they had become – one of the guys, he had – appears to have been quite religious and he had become friends uh, when they – with another guy and they both ended up going uh, when they were students at Seljuk University in, in Konya. And the individuals that you highlight, not all of them knew each other or did – they all have some sort of connection, whether it was through school or personal connections, friends, family. That I don't know. I not there's not a, the level of detail for all of the individuals uh, that there is for some, but the the individuals who have quite a bit of detail about them, there definitely appears to be some connection between them. Um, and since there's reports that it was a rel- that it was a relatively big group that went together, of at least I mean big in the sense of ten guys. Um, all going at the same time, that it was likely that there was connections, but prior connections between them. And six of them had gone to Bosnia, at least six of them had gone to Bosnia previously uh, and had returned to Turkey afterwards. Very interesting. So looking at this, you have these young men that have these aspirations. They make the ultimate choice to go there. But you alluded to it a bit at the starting of the talk of um, the Bosnia connection, which I'd really like to talk about a little bit more. And do you think the Bosnian connection was what really recruited these young individuals ultimately? Because, of course, nowadays we see a lot more recruitment happening via social media, Internet access and so forth, not just a community element. Um, how is the recruitment happening back in 1996 as compared to today? I think, I mean, in the mid-90s, I don't want to speak to this too much because I don't have that many 
details. Uh, but I think it was much more of a personal type situation, people talking to each other. Um, but it was also, it was a lot less, I guess it was a lot less stigmatized than it is now. I mean, there was no ISIS. I mean, there was really not, in 1996, Al-Qaeda was just a brand new thing and it hadn't, you know, 9-11 hadn't occurred or anything like that. I mean, going and fighting these conflicts had, I, I think it had different connotations than it does than it than going to fight in Afghanistan in the 2000s and definitely in going and fighting in Syria now um, and how people would view them uh, both at home and abroad. And how were these young individuals viewed back home in Turkey? I mean, at least among their kind of family and friends and from the, the information that's available, uh, it seems like they were relatively, they're honored for this, their activities. Um, and one interesting aspect is the individual Altila Sultan, who I had mentioned before, who had potentially been this kind of linchpin, linchpin figure in getting all these other guys to the Agadan. He actually had gone to the Agadan and then returned to Turkey for some time where he was going um, around the country and actually giving or appearing on television and radio programs, talking about the conflict, talking about the need for support for the conflict and the, you know, the, the injustice of it and the violence committed by Ethiopian troops. Um, he ended up going back. He had been very close friends with, with one of the fighters I had mentioned previously, uh, Ismail Ozturk, and he found out that Ismail Ozturk had been killed in a battle, and ultimately that spurred him to return to the Ogaden. Um, but I mean, from the available information, at least in some quarters, they were the, they were honored. As you can see in the article, uh, there's the the story of four of the fighters killed actually became uh, a cover story for a Islamist political newspaper or magazine from the the mid 1990s. Um, so it was definitely around if you were looking for it. And I'd like to look a little bit more at the Bosnian connection. And you mentioned that Sultan was in Bosnia and met with individuals that mentioned this other jihad that was available in the Ogaden. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could look at that a little bit in more detail, because it's actually a very interesting connection. And it really shows that once one jihad, so to speak, is over, that some individuals are looking for a second one to continue on and, and continue, I guess you could call it almost a legacy for them. Yeah. I mean, Sultan, he had actually, I mean, he, he had been working in Istanbul, but actually he became, I mean, from the available information, he became more religious uh, and actually moved to Germany with the ultimate goal of wanting to get to Bosnia to fight. So he had, at least for him, there had, he had long had, aspirations to be involved in, in these conflicts. Um, so it's not, so if, once that conflict was over, and I think that a lot of these guys were disappointed that they got there and there was nothing to do. And also with the Dayton Accords, they basically, it was illegal for them to be there anymore and they had to leave. Um, they were kind of disappointed that they were not able to get involved in actual fighting and combat. So fast forwarding to the Ogaden, you have these young men from Turkey that traveled there. Um, do you have sources on 
how they got there in the sense of like with today with Syria, we see a lot of people going to Turkey and, and crossing the border and so forth. How was their trip from Turkey all the way to the Ogden? And how was that set up? How did they get there? How did they get the funds to do this? Actually, that is the, the big gap in our research. Um, there was not very much information at all about them actually, how they actually got there. It was more, they left from Turkey and they went to the Ogden. Um, I personally did not see any, uh, any specific information about how they got there. Yeah, I'll, I'll say it's, it's difficult to tell from this, from these Turkish, uh, fighters, but looking through some of the other Al Qaeda documents, uh, that were declassified, um, a lot of them came through, through, uh, neighboring regions, and in particular Kenya, were able to get to Nairobi and then able to get to the border and, and in some cases even chartered a plane or, or a boat and wound up uh, facilitating their way into Somalia through, through those means. That's very interesting. So once they arrive in the Ogaden, what are the experiences of these young men? I assume they're going there with no prior military or military skills are they trained? Are they just thrown into the fight? How does this work? What is their experience? It's possible that some of them had at least some military experience because uh, in Turkey, there's, there's uh, everyone's serving the military. Some of them I know didn't, they were too young for that um, or they were in college and it, it would come after they graduated from college. So it's possible that a few of them had some military experience, but um, there was definitely problems for some of them. They actually wrote home complaining that they received no combat training whatsoever uh, and they were not having a great time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think at this time, uh, you know, Somalia is a very harsh environment and it's something we mentioned that some of the foreign fighters uh, sort of uh, maybe didn't meet their expectations or they were a little disappointed. Uh, and you see this also in, in some of the, the literature on um, from the Al-Qaeda memos. Um, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult environment to begin with, very dry, very arid, food insecurity is a persistent issue. Um, at the same time, within Somalia itself, there's uh, the Somali clan system is notoriously difficult uh, to navigate, especially for outsiders. Um, there's, there's other issues in terms of logistics, in terms of... Uh, uh, getting supplies to the region and to the camps. Um, and, and remember, there's no real central government at this time. So there's a lot of competing uh, warlords and militias and, and, and smaller power bases. Uh, and so that can also be a very uh, a bit of an anarchic time and something very difficult to, to navigate. And did you see these young individuals almost sticking together in groups once they arrived there? Um, and were involved in the fight, were they dispersed? Um, I mean, this is a very hostile environment. Um, what was that like? Did they stay together? Did they, were they transferred to different units? How does this work? It seems like they stayed together, um, mainly because the their reported deaths happened in two clusters. Um, one was in an attack in August 96, and the second one was in a, an attack in December 1996. Um, the, the battle in, 1990, uh, the, in December 1996 was much deadlier with 10 of the fighters um, reportedly being killed in it. Um, so it was likely that they were together 
uh, if that number had been killed. Um, and actually, in the announcements of their deaths, there was also reports of other foreigners being killed. Uh, a Frenchman, an Algerian, a Saudi, a Gambian, and three Egyptians were killed with the first um, four Turks who were killed in August of 1996. Do you know by any chance, do you have the data, did the foreign fighters, um, not just the Turkish individuals, but the, the individuals from the other regions and countries that you mentioned, were they put together in units? I mean, in Syria, you're starting to see almost what I call foreign fighter units where they're sticking people that are all from France in one unit, um, Belgium in one unit. Um, was that something that was happening in the Ogden back in 1996? Is there no data on that? That I, I can't speak to. I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, that's something, though, um, that you've seen also within Somalia uh, in, in the current context, uh, when uh, at least a few years ago, when, when there was a more heightened uh, amount of foreign fighters in the region. Uh, you, you saw some particular units uh, organized like that. Mm. Well, one thing that you mentioned in your article is this concept of Turkish citizens fighting alongside, for instance, today, the Islamic State and how this idea is very almost abnormal, an abnormal occurrence because of the Turkish state being very secular and, um, you know, it's, it's different compared to other countries. And I was wondering if we could kind of look at this concept a bit in the present situation in Syria as well as in the past with Ogaden. Sure. Um, I think the Ogaden is more similar to the... The conflict in Syria in about 2012, 2013, um, if you looked at the Turkish fighters who were killed during that period, they were far more similar to this. Um, they were guys who had previous connections to other conflicts um, who had or had relatives who had previous connections um, to these conflicts. And they were guys who were more ideologically kind of attuned uh, and even a little bit older guys and they're more in their 20s while i mean sometimes you're seeing now you know just teenagers guys who are 15 16 years old from ankara and different places going to to syria um i think that the well at least the way that that the islamic state presents itself now it's more of a broad-based social movement ideological type thing rather than uh the early days of Syria where people were going to fight and they were going to fight Bashar al-Assad, not for, you know, to create an Islamic state per se. I want to look at to sort of bring this talk to a conclusion. Um, the idea of what can we learn from this past experience in the Ogden and transferring it to the present day. So we have these young individuals back in 1996 and then we have young individuals today um, in Syria and Iraq going to this completely different fight, but also very relevant as well. So what do we learn from the past that we can transfer here to the future? I think the biggest thing that struck us while we were working on this is, you know, we, we've done a lot of, of reading about foreign fighters and looked at a lot of the, the literature on it. And this case just fit exactly into all of the, the, the more theoretical stuff on this topic. I mean, I think as 
then and now when you just have young dudes who want to get involved in something and they feel like there's not a, an outlet for them and there's, there's injustice, you know, young dudes are going to make rash decisions. Um, honestly, I don't know how, like, if it's that much more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Mahmoud, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on this topic as well. Um, yeah, well, I think it's a really interesting sort of historical um, example because a lot of these similar dynamics within the Horn of Africa region are going on today. Uh, there's still uh, uh, resistance within the Ogaden region. Um, and really, while AIAI was sort of decimated um, during uh, these attacks where these, these Turkish uh, fighters wound up dying and the movement more or less kind of uh, withered, uh, a lot of the leaders who were part of that movement um, and, and, and had experience there have uh, wound up going on to form some of the more uh, prominent Islamist movements today and, and in particular played roles within the Islamic Courts Union and Al-Shabaab, uh, which is the biggest security threat within uh, uh, Somalia today. So it's interesting to see uh, those parallels from there in, in the role that while foreign fighters played within the Ogaden also played uh, uh, an interesting role within Somalia uh, a few years ago. Um, so there's a lot of, I guess, a lot of historical parallels. And even though this is 20 years ago, uh, it, it's sort of a microcosm of things that are happening today and that really haven't been resolved within the region. I think as long as, as these conflicts exist, there's going to be at least some group of young men who will want to become involved in them. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> So we always like to give our guests a moment to either touch on something that we might not have touched on in the talk, or if there's a final word you'd like to provide the listeners with. So I'll give both of you a moment to um, maybe discuss something. Um, actually, I think something that's not in the article, but uh, just came to, to mind was if for example, the, I, I ended the article with talking about uh, Ismail Ozturk and his twin brother, Osman Ozturk, um, who followed his brother's footsteps and ended up being killed in Kashmir. Um, in, other, in Syria, we've actually seen the very same case. Uh, there was two brothers. There was Azad Akinji and Mehmet Akinji. Azad Akinji was actually one of the... Uh, primary planners of the 2003 HSBC bank bombings in Istanbul. Um, and he eventually went to Iraq and actually was a suicide bomber in Iraq against U.S. forces. Well, his younger brother, Mehmet Akinji, when the conflict in Syria started, well, he was one of – he was actually reported killed in 2012 in the – one of the first Turkish foreign fighters um, reported killed. There's – I think uh, – with like the Ogden and now you're going to see the same sort of patterns of relationships. Once you start digging into cases, um, I mean, especially with all the talk about social media and whatnot, I think at least in Turkey, when you actually dig into the backgrounds of people, you're going to see much more personal connections rather than uh, social media or the online environment being the most important driving factor. Um, yeah, I would just add, uh, 
it's just interesting to look at the the narrative that was playing out there. And it, you had within the Ogden uh, sort of this emphasis on this Christian Ethiopian empire occupying uh, Muslim land, in this case, Somali Muslim land. And that's something that that same sort of narrative has been played out time and time again in, in a lot of uh, conflicts around uh, that, that wind up drawing in this sort of foreign fighter element. And you have to look at while AIAI basically failed in their mission and while all these uh, Turkish foreign fighters were killed, they do wind up inspiring a, a lot of others um, uh, through, through their actions. And so while maybe at the time um, Ethiopia and, and other, other elements within the region thought they had kind of uh, eliminated this Islamist threat and whatnot, we can see clearly from events that have transpired since then uh, that really hasn't been the case. I'm sure as history continues, we're going to be seeing this repeated in different aspects, but it's sort of like history just keeps on repeating itself in exactly. different theaters. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the conclusion. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for both being on the show. It's been really interesting talking about this topic and the article itself has some great research in it. So I hope our guests will read it. And as I said earlier in the talk, we will post a link to the, um, the piece, but thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for having us.